Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. Francis Fukuyama is one of the world's most well-known and widely respected theorists of international politics. In the early 1990s, he rose to fame with The End of History and The Last Man. Since then, he's produced a steady stream of books, including America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and the Neoconservative Legacy, Our Postmodern Future, Consequences of the Biotechnology Revolution, Trust, the Social Virtues, and the Creation of Prosperity, and Political Order and Political Decay. His new book, recently excerpted on Quillette.com, is called Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. It wrestles with some of the biggest problems facing Western societies on both ends of the political spectrum, populism on the right and identity politics on the left. Dr. Fukuyama has been busy promoting his new book and other projects, but he took a moment to speak over the phone with Quillette contributor Alexandra Hudson about this new book. While the audio quality is suboptimal at points, we weren't going to let that get in the way of bringing you an interview with this world-class intellectual. You make this distinction between isothumia and megalothumia as you characterize the broad landscape of struggles for recognition in the historical record. So isothumia being the desire to be equal to everyone else, and megalothumia is the desire to be better. Do you think that this is an inevitability that all movements that are struggling for equal footing end up being a movement for superiority. I don't think it necessarily has to be inevitable, but it historically has worked out that way quite often. When you build group solidarity, you demand recognition, a lot of times it creates a kind of we-them situation. And I just think this is kind of natural to the way human sociality operates. As a result of the demonization of people that are not in the group, you eventually begin to feel that your group is better. So this is certainly the case with nationalism. Germany in the 19th century was scattered across a lot of different principalities and small states, and they wanted to live in the same country with one another. So this finally happens under Bismarck. But then the forces that propel them to get equal recognition lead them to want to dominate. I think something like that is going on with Russia right now. So in the 1990s, Russia was very weak at the mercy of the IMF and the West. They really resented that, which is probably quite understandable. But unfortunately, their concept of who they are as a nation involves the domination of the countries around their periphery. And so the one demand for equality then shifts over into a demand for being recognized as greater than other people. Uh, So I don't think it's inevitable, but I do think that it's quite frequent. Can you think of any movements for recognition or for isothumia, kind of the equal footing, that haven't made that move? You take something like the civil rights movement. You know, it was a 
movement for social justice, Martin Luther King's formulation of the struggle was that black people should be treated exactly like white people. And I think that part of the movement actually succeeded. It mobilized people and it brought about changes in the Voting Rights Act and other measures that formalized that ended legal segregation. Other parts of the movement, black power and later movements began to shift the ground away from this desire to be part of the larger society into asserting that, you know, African-Americans have a separate culture and, you know, it's the culture that needs to be recognized. But that's not the whole movement. And so today, you know, with something like Black Lives Matter, there are people that take it in that particular direction. Most of that movement is just powered by an unhappiness with police violence, and that's a demand for equal treatment under the law. So I think that it's not inevitable, you know, all of these movements oftentimes move in multiple directions. Part of your argument is that the tension between the desire for equality but also precedent has always existed and that our current struggle with identity politics today is a new manifestation of a timeless kind of old problem that's coeval with the human condition. If that's the case, can you think of any leaders or eras that have navigated this tension? And if so, what can we learn from them today? Identity, I think, is based on a universal human psychology, which is the psychology of thumos. This is the part of the soul that the Greeks understood that demands recognition and respect and believes that we have an inner dignity. And so this part exists in all societies. But the substantive nature of what that dignity is varies from one society to another, and it's shaped by the social norms of the society, and it's also shaped by leaders. And so in an aristocratic society, the only people that deserve respect are warriors, uh, by and large. But in a democratic society, the demand is for equal recognition, and that can be shaped in a lot of different ways. I think that one of the things that's happened is that that demand for universal recognition as a citizen, as an equal member of the society, has been displaced increasingly over the past few decades by a demand to be recognized as a member of a particular group within that society. And the issue is really a struggle over the scope of the recognition. So if you want an example of how leaders can shape that, you know, the one that I cite in the book is the one portrayed in the movie Invictus about Nelson Mandela. So Mandela kind of realized that some, I don't know, 30, 40% of the South African population is not black. There's a mixture of whites and Indians and people of a lot of other ethnicities and races. And he had this clear sense that you couldn't create a new South Africa, a new democratic South Africa, unless you understood identity to be basically multiracial and multicultural. And so his idea was a rainbow nation or that was the word he used, not in the gay rights sense of Americans, but rainbow, meaning there's a lot of colors of people in South Africa. What the movie portrays is the 1996 Rugby World Cup, in which basically South Africans were divided over sports. So blacks cheered for soccer players, football players, and whites cheered for their rugby team, the national rugby team, the, the Springboks, which at that point was almost entirely white. And Mandela tries to get his fellow black South Africans to cheer for the national rugby team. And it meets a lot of resistance from other members of the ANC. 
but that was encoded in his vision of the kind of nation that he wanted South Africa to be. So I think that's an example of how leadership can shape things. And all nations are built in this fashion, partly from the bottom up by poets and filmmakers and writers and composers, but it's also shaped in a way by the way that leaders talk about their nation. And I think one of the big problems right now is in the United States, and I think in a lot of other countries, we don't have that kind of leadership. For Donald Trump, it's too late. I think if he just resigned, you could start over again with a different kind of leader, because I don't think he can take back a lot of the things in his past. I mean, he gets to start as a politician by promoting this birther conspiracy about Barack Obama, the first black elected president of the United States. And I just don't think that you can start over when you've begun from a kind of divisive position like that. I don't think that that's really possible. I think another leader, that person would emphasize what it means to be an American. I think that there is a sense of American identity that's been very painfully shaped over, what is it now, 230 years of American national existence to be what I call a civic identity, which is basically an identity that's not based on race or ethnicity or religion, but it's based on a basic belief in fundamental democratic principles. And so I think that that's the sort of identity that a leader ought to emphasize. The problem exists both on the right and the left. I mean, on the right, you have the rise of the alt-right and these white nationalists that are trying to take the country back into a racially defined understanding of Americanness. And then on the left, you've got the identitarians who see membership in particular groups as those identities are more essential to them than identity as Americans. And I think the solution on both sides requires somebody coming from that basic political orientation, but saying, wait, stop, we need to think about this in other ways. And so on the left, I think it would require a Democrat who tried to recapture patriotism from the Republicans, saying that it's okay actually to be proud of the United States, to celebrate its progress. You don't have to whitewash the bad things that have happened in American history, like slavery and Jim Crow and patriarchy and so forth. But you can also understand that there's a progressive lesson or a progressive story that has to do with the overcoming of those kinds of injustices. On the right, I think that it requires just returning to where I thought the Republican Party had been, you know, after Ronald Reagan, which was an acceptance of that civic identity and clear repudiation of people that want to try to redefine it in racial terms. When you look at times of national unity in American history, the Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II, the Cold War, there was always this external threat by which we could define who we were. Absent a kind of external threat, do you think it's possible for countries to be unified, let alone America? Yeah, well, I mean, external threats are one way of getting to national unity, but it's not the only way. And I think it's probably one of the less desirable ways because it has lots of potentially dangerous foreign policy consequences. I think if you look at what happened during the 1930s, you had a severe economic crisis. You know, the unemployment rate in the United States went up to almost 25%. People were suddenly cast into poverty, the stability of the banking system disappears, people's savings evaporate. And that's the moment for kind of the refounding of the American state under Roosevelt. And that did not take an us-them 
position, certainly with regard to external groups. And it's true, World War II cemented that in a certain way because Roosevelt entered the war calling for national unity against fascism. But, you know, that process started a decade before the war actually began. And there's a lot of other cases of national identity being shaped, you know, by by leaders that do not necessarily demonize other groups in the process. If you think about Australia, Canada, you got a lot of countries that have a sense of who they are. Yeah, I mean, the most typical way of defining national identity actually is cultural, but it's very much dependent on the context of the particular society. So, for example, in France, the French sense of national identity really revolves around the French language and the great authors that have written in the French tradition. So traditionally in the French education system, you read Moliere and Rabelais and and Flaubert and all of the great authors. And what it means to be French is really less the racial sense of what that means, but more can you use the French language and express yourself in it? So Leopold Senghor, you know, Senegalese poet that writes in French, is admitted to the Académie Française in the 1980s because he can write in French very beautifully. In the United States, we've got a big problem because, first of all, we don't have the kind of literary tradition that France does. And because of our diversity right from the beginning, a lot of the fights over identity actually are over whether there is such a thing as a canon and whether the American founding fathers are actually at the core of American identity or whether they're just a bunch of white men that own slaves and so forth. And I think that you know, trying to shape identity around a national literary tradition is just harder in the United States because of that contestation. But I don't think it's impossible. You know, I don't think that we need to give up on that because, um, you know, this is where a lot of the fights over identity politics have really taken place on university campuses over things like, should there be a core to what undergraduates are supposed to learn in terms of authors that they read as part of their liberal education. And in this respect, I mean, I am firmly on the side of people that believe that there ought to be a core, that it ought to be Western, you know, that if you don't understand that tradition, you're simply not going to understand. I mean, even if you're critical of it, and you ought to be critical of many aspects, but if you're not familiar with that tradition, you're simply not going to understand the world that you live in. It's just a little bit different in the United States because we never quite established the same sort of literary canon. When you get into the 20th century, it becomes much more contested as to, you know, who's considered a great American author. So that's just kind of a reflection of some of those difficulties. So do you see any relationship with France's tight-fisted approach to language and inflexibility and also their fierce national identity and the response to some of these same questions of identity and immigration in France today to the American response and America's organic approach to language? Well, look, just as an example of what's going on in France right now, France, like Germany and the Netherlands and a lot of countries actually have legal requirements for what's an acceptable first name. Hmm. So in a lot of countries, it's basically the Christian saints. And one of the big controversies that's been going on in France is that many of the babies born, you know, the parents want to name them Lee or Mohammed or something of that sort. And so they've actually adjusted that list um, to allow for Muslim first names. Now, if you think about that, 
Americans would never tolerate a government agency that told them what they could name their children because that's part of American individualism. We think every parent should have the right to do that. So I think that what's going on is actually these countries are now, in a way, catching up to the United States and kind of realizing that they're not going to be able to set these cultural boundaries so easily because of their de facto diversity. And the question is whether they can restore some kind of a sense of common culture, given that that is the case. And I am not sure how that dispute is going to work itself out. This is probably something in the United States, like I said, that's simply going to have to evolve socially. And I don't think that any kind of top-down authority is really going to be very effective here, just as it's becoming a lot less effective in Europe. Do you think there's any objective way to determine when a movement shifts from isothumia to megalothumia, or is it always subjective? And one example that comes to mind is, would you say there's any meaningful difference between the Freedman's Bureau and the Reconstruction Period, which was established to help freed slaves adjust to post-slavery life, protect them from slave owners, and give them equal legal footing, and Black Lives Matter today? And if so, how would you characterize that difference? Well, yeah, this is an issue that I've thought a lot about in the course of writing my book and in the discussions I've had since then, because I think basically identity politics comes out of a demand for equal treatment uh, in a liberal society that's completely justified. And so police violence of the sort that we've seen examples of in Ferguson or in Baltimore or other cities, that's a real problem and it needs to be addressed. And I had this fight, I guess, or this discussion with Stacey Abrams and foreign affairs, you know, precisely over this kind of issue and what she and other people that are proponents of identity politics say is that this is the way you get things corrected in societies. People mobilize around an identity and then they push back and so forth. And so I think that is correct. But the question is, where does that actually go off the rails and become a threat to underlying principles on which our liberal democracy is based? And I think the point comes when identity becomes regarded as an essential characteristic that trumps other characteristics that an individual might have, such as capacity, background, expertise, things of that sort. So the argument that is used within the identity movement is that, yes, we are supposed to be treated impartially as individuals, but we're being treated as members of a group. We're being discriminated as members of a group. And therefore, we have a right to mobilize as a group and to think of ourselves as victims on a group basis, which as far as that goes, is correct. So then the question is, does that group identity that is imposed on you become internalized in some sense? And so the only way you think about yourself is as a member of that group. And I think that's the moment at which you've got a real problem because that begins to contradict some of the fundamental normative principles of living in a liberal democracy because we are not a nation of groups we're not a number of self-defined cultural groups that are protecting group rights. We are individuals who are given individual rights by the Constitution. And when the group rights contradict the individual rights, I think ultimately the individual rights are the ones that have to be dominant. So this is all very abstract, but <laughs> this comes up in affirmative action, right? In, in hiring where you say you are 
know, trying to build a bridge or a tunnel and you are looking for contractors and you say, well, it has to be, you know, a minority or female owned business mm-hmm. uh, and that they get first priority over the most efficient or the most effective contractor. So that's an example. I mean, and this is part of the reason we can't do infrastructure in this country is that we've politicized that process by these assertions of group identity. And that's very problematic because you could have a minority-owned or female-owned enterprise that's just as rapacious or incompetent or a poor performer as any other contractor. And once you move away from public procurement that's based on price and efficiency, you begin to undermine other kinds of social values that in this quest for affirmation of your identity. So that's what I mean by regarding identity as essential. I mean, I think identity is inevitably part of the way we think of ourselves. We are mistreated based on these group memberships. We are discriminated against. That's all true. But if you allow that group membership to simply define who you are and become so basic to how you think about yourself that, you know, it's more important than any of these other characteristics, then I think you've got a real problem. So do you kind of have a categorical ban in your own mind against these government contracting preferences or set aside for, for example, veteran-owned businesses or women-owned businesses? I think all of that has gotten really out of hand. You know, for example, this is not an issue that has gotten much public attention, but if you look at federal employment, as a result of Afghanistan and Iraq, we have these veterans' preferences in hiring federal workers. And so about 50% of all new hires in the federal employment are now veterans. And of them, you know, probably half are disabled veterans. So perfectly understandable why Congress did this. We want to be grateful to these people. A lot of them have trouble adjusting once they leave the military. But you also need a competent federal workforce. And is this group of people the optimal group of people that you want entering, you know, federal employment? Well, I doubt it. You probably want to be like Google or General Motors in terms of hiring executives to run important government agencies. And being a veteran is probably not the most important qualification for doing that. It's not a disqualification. It gets in the way of actually having the best federal workforce that you could have. So yes, I think that that's an inappropriate use of identity. So like I said, that's an example where that group membership becomes an overriding consideration that is more important than any other consideration. And that's where identity goes wrong. In the Depression era, the 1930s, as part of New Deal legislation, there was an attempt to employ massly individuals with disabilities and kind of integrate them into the workforce a little bit and give them jobs instead of having them, you know, housed in institutions. It was called the Javits Waite Wagner O'Day Act. So that's like another example of these kind of legislative preferences that we're talking about. Are there any instances that you think that they are justified? This gets into a broader question of affirmative action. And I have a uh, kind of complex attitude towards affirmative action, I think it's completely justified in many cases because people actually are discriminated against on the basis of their membership in groups and they do suffer a kind of general disability based on their membership in these groups. And so it's not, I think, morally unacceptable for the society to uh, try to compensate them for this. But the problem is that in 
practice, a lot of these preferences are taken to, to extremes that injure other kinds of social values. And so I would just think that the balance needs very, very carefully calibrated. This comes up in things like, well, I mean, if you stick with the issue of disability, so of course there should be special accommodation that should be supported by the federal government for people with disabilities. But the way that the Americans with Disabilities Act is written is extremely rigid so that, for example, wheelchair ramps and other sorts of accommodations are legally required in every small town and village in the United States. And there may be other ways of accommodating people with disabilities that do not require every single small business owner to install the kind of equipment that's mandated currently under the law. And so I think a little bit more discretion and balancing of other social objectives, you know, may be appropriate in cases like that. But unfortunately, that's kind of the American way of government. We're extremely legalistic. And so we come up with these rules that tend to congeal over time and become very hard to change. And I think that's really one of the sources of problems in this area. If you're interested in this, there's a very interesting article published a few years ago in the American Interest about, you know, a small town in California that faced exactly this problem with the ADA, where essentially a disability activist sued, you know, all 250 businesses in the town for not meeting the standards of the ADA in terms of accommodations. And, you know, it turned out to be extremely expensive for, you know, for most of them. And it turned out that the number of disabled people that actually needed this kind of accommodation was extremely small. So on any kind of cost-benefit analysis, there were probably much, much cheaper ways in which you could have uh, accommodated them. But again, that's our American way of government. We are very legalistic. And Mm -hmm. once you establish these general rules that are based on these identity categories, you have no flexibility in the way that you apply them. Jill Lepore has a recent contribution in her new book, We the People, and her big push is that we need a new American history. I was listening to an interview with her recently. She just said, history is just the facts. And she kind of was dismissive, says something along the lines of kids in school dress up as Ben Franklin. That's nice. But don't bring the mythology of the founders and the mythology of, of Americanism into what I do. It's, that's like saying to a chemist, oh, what you do is nice, but this alchemy is also really interesting. Like That's how she viewed the normative value of storytelling and kind of deriving principles from studying biography, which is interesting interesting because that's very contrary to how the first historians in history looked at the study of the past. Do you think that we need norms? Well, I don't think that there's actually anybody that believes we don't need norms. I mean, I would strongly suspect that she's completely normative herself. She's just a different group of people. And so, you know, this is probably part of the campaign to demythologize the founders And so she's not being non-normative. She's just got a different set of norms that, you know, prizes those identities more than uh, those of the traditional founders. Norms are important. I think a lot of our contest is over what those norms ought to be. In terms of my own normative framework, I actually think that compared to most other political systems out there, liberal democracy as it's been evolved over the centuries is about as good as you're going to get. And those are based on certain normative principles. And if you don't defend those principles, you're going to end up in a kind of moral chaos where you've got competing 
normative values that disagree over very deep and important things. And you can't have a society that isn't based on a common set of understandings as to what's important. But I wonder if you've given much thought to the downside, uh, if you will, of cultural unity. And I'm thinking specifically of this incredible push for cultural unity when Alexander the Great ruled the known world, where he encouraged intermarriage between the Greeks, Macedons, Romans, and the quote-unquote barbarians. He established cultural institutions all across the empire. He established a common language, Koine Greek. He wanted everyone to be on the same page with religion. So he wanted everyone to feel at home in all parts of the known world that he ruled. But this had a kind of flip side where people felt incredibly like they were a citizen of the world, but really a citizen of nowhere and want something more rooted and local to kind of attach themselves to. That's one of the purposes of federalism, for example, is that uh, in a big, diverse society, politically, you cannot impose the will of the center on everybody. And there has to be some local variation. In order to maintain national unity, you have to have a certain basic set of underlying principles, but within that framework, people get to govern themselves and live according to their local conditions. That's the way I think successful political systems have operated. Mm -hmm. And you get into trouble in both directions when you try to impose too much uniformity from the center, particularly when you're dealing with a really diverse group of societies, but you also get into trouble when you allow too much localism because some of those local customs really do not accord with the kind of underlying principle. I mean, that was the real issue in the Civil War, right? That the Southern states said, well, you know, we have our own local traditions and one of them is slavery. We ought to be allowed to keep that peculiar institution. And Lincoln's argument was American federalism doesn't extend that far because we have a declaration of independence that says all men are created equal. And if you hold another human being in bondage, that violates that fundamental principle. And so I think, you know, you fight this very bloody civil war over that precise issue as to whether that human equality is really part of Americanness. And I think that war and then the passage of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments were the legal recognition that our diversity in a federal system is important, but it has certain boundaries, and one of those boundaries is slavery. So does that kind of get at your explanation of, or how you understand, this sort of push towards supranational entities like the European Union, like the United Nations, but also this drive for localities, like whether it's the Scottish vote to leave or remain or, you know, the Basque region or the Catalans wanting to separate off of Spain. How do you understand these two seemingly divergent trends in our current geopolitical landscape? There's a lot of things going on in all of these movements. Take something like Scotland. This is not a revolt against globalization because that's the one part of Britain that's really determined to remain in the European Union. And so if there's ever an independent Scotland, it's going to be part of this larger European Mm -hmm. entities. They don't just tolerate it. I mean, they actually think that their future is dependent on their membership in the European Union. What they don't like is London and the kind of domineering attitudes that the English have had towards them. And it gets down to things like control over resources. I think Probably the same thing is true of the Catalans, that they're not unhappy with the European Union, they just don't want to be part of Spain. But that's only 50% of the population in Catalonia, and so even there it's a pretty complicated story. So yes, I do think that there's pushback against these global institutions. I think that 
in some case that pushback is justified. But I think in general, these international institutions are so weak that a lot of the threats are kind of imaginary ones. Probably the one that is the most neuralgic right now in Europe has to do with refugees, because there is an international regime governing refugees. And no European country, in theory, is completely sovereign with regard to the way that it treats refugees. It is subject to a number of both European rules and then universal declaration of human rights and other things that these countries have signed on to. And I think a lot of the right-wing populist movements are driven by this perception that their membership in the European Union and in the Council of Europe and other bodies has deprived them of their ability to control who comes into their country. That was certainly the big issue in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that respect, you know, I think there's some legitimacy to that because, in fact, the rules regarding refugees have been liberalized quite considerably by the European Court of Human Rights or the European Court of Justice over the last decade in ways that are not really under the control of democratic majorities in the countries that are involved. And so I think that's a problem that needs to be addressed. In your book, you talk about how populism is in many ways anti-institutional, how mm -hmm. a populist leader says, I am the voice of the people and kind of feels empowered to circumvent institutional constraints. But what's interesting is that survey data and a bunch of literature has been written on the decline of trust in institutions way predates this kind of recent push towards populism mm -hmm. in the last few years. And I'd love your thoughts on that trend. What's caused the decline in institutional trust, whether it's you know, the media, fake news, social media, and the Supreme Court, the presidency, and Congress, and can it be regained? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, and I don't know that I have the answer to it, but I suspect that it has to do with several social trends that are kind of converging. And one actually is the fact that people are much better educated now in general, certainly in the rich world, than they had been 50 years ago. I think that people without higher educations tend to be more trusting in authority. This is a case, for example, in voting. Patronage voting is very high in less developed countries with big peasantries, you know, where basically the landlord can essentially tell all of his tenants, you know, how to vote in an, in an election. Whereas now in a modern urban environment, you just don't have people like that. Nobody's going to tell the residents of New York City, oh, you all have to vote this way because I'm the big boss, right? People say, I'm, I can make these decisions for myself. Who the hell are you to tell me that, right? So part of it is actually the result of a good thing, which is the fact that people are more autonomous and educated and able to think for themselves. I actually think that you know, it's funny because transparency is usually touted as a solution to distrust that if you make things more visible, people will understand the origins of decisions and they will trust authorities more. I think it's actually just the opposite. I think that decision makes always been as biased and corrupt and so forth throughout human history. But once you shine a light on that, people say, Ugh, so this is really what's going on. This is really terrible. So it's not that things are different. It's just people see more of that. With the internet, you know, essentially you've removed all of the gatekeepers and intermediaries that used to process information for people, used to check facts, used to certify the reliability of information. And all of that, you know, was blown away by the fact that you can talk peer to peer with anyone you want now. And 
that's had predictable consequences where anyone can say anything they want on the internet and nobody's voice is more authoritative than anyone else's. And I think that's also not a great situation because all those editors and publishers and media intermediaries actually did play a useful function in democratic societies. So I think we're probably talking about some combination of all of those things. Whether you can put that genie back into the bottle, I think only partially. And then it's, do you want to? I think having more information available is generally a good thing. I tend to not be on the bandwagon of people condemning the social media giants. This is not a level playing field, right? The business models of Facebook and Google basically prize virality, things that people click on because that's how they earn money. And so their algorithms are not just neutral where people post stuff and they just interact spontaneously. They're actually being accelerated algorithmically by the business interest of these platforms. And that's why I think, uh, you know, they're actually contributing to the problem. Also, the speed and the scale is different. Like if you think about conspiracy theories before the Internet, if you had this crackpot idea that Hillary Clinton is running a child sex ring in a pizza parlor in Northwest Washington, you would have gone, you know, to your local bar and you may have had, you know, six friends there and you could have told the story to them and they would have agreed with you. And that's as far as it would have gotten. Whereas now you put this up on the internet and you get thousands of people and say, yeah, that must be right. And, you know, it becomes self-reinforcing and it spreads much, much more quickly than in the past. So I think that is a problem that's unique to the internet age. Last question. Anything you're reading or watching right now that you would recommend? I started reading a book by Richard Rangham that just came out this past year. It's called The Goodness Paradox. So Richard Rangham is a biological anthropologist at Harvard. He has written some really interesting earlier books. Uh, he wrote a book maybe 15, 20 years ago called Demonic Males, in which he traces a lot of human behavior to primate behavior, because that's really his specialty. And this book actually is quite interesting regarding the issue we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, does the bonding and sociability that exists in human societies depend on hostility and violence towards outsiders? And he basically argues that this is true, you know, in the primate world as well. And wow. it's very likely that this is something that we've inherited as part of our genetic inheritance from those primate ancestors. He gets into this whole discussion because conservatives like chimpanzees who are kind of nasty and violent and liberals like bonobos who, you know, are much more maternal and, and you know, peaceful. And he actually argues that that's also a false dichotomy, that bonobos can be just as violent to mm. other bonobos outside of their group. It's just that they organize themselves somewhat differently. It's actually quite a fascinating book. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fukuyama. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.